So Money Episode 541, Deepa Prashathaman, National Managing Director of Deloitte's Women's Initiative. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Very happy and delighted to present today's guest to all of us, men and women. You know by now that I'm a big believer that when women earn more and participate more in leadership, the world is a better place. I just think it's a win-win. I really do. And today's guest is the National Managing Director of the Deloitte Women's Initiative, which is helping to achieve just that. But not just for women, for all workers. Deba Prashathaman is here. And through the Women's Initiative, WIN, she works to help build opportunity, enrichment, and new thinking around talent and inclusion in the workforce so that all leaders, particularly women, thrive. She also leads the social impact service line of Deloitte Consulting and has a lot of experience working in the private sector. Previously, she was part of the telecom media and technology practice where she helped clients nationally and globally to redefine their company evolution. And in this episode, we're going to learn about the financial hardship Deepa experienced growing up that shaped the way that she now thinks about and runs her financial life. The critical business meeting years ago that defined her leadership style and what does she think about whether women should take a page out of the male playbook when it comes to succeeding in the workplace. Here's Deepa Prashathaman. Deepa Prashatham, and welcome to So Money. I'm really excited to have you on the show to learn more about your role as a thought leader in this space of women, men, family issues, and how the workplace can catch up, but also your So Money stories. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You come to this podcast with years and years of experience as a leader at the corporate level, at the executive level. And I would like to start with, if we could, and then we'll backtrack a little bit. But, you know, I think what's really making headlines these days is the evolution of corporate America and the workplace as it pertains to family issues and flexibility and what women need and want, and also what men need and want as their lives evolve, as they have families. And where do you see yourself in this context as far as a change maker, a role model? I mean, where, where do you see yourself in this, in this conversation? Sure. So I um, am our managing principal, managing partner for our Deloitte Women's Initiative, which fits under our inclusion umbrella. Um, and I would say in that role, I'm really excited about the new policies and the new things that Deloitte is doing in this space. Um, you're probably aware of something we put out pretty recently. It's a 16-week policy, or it's a new leave policy that allows all of our people to take 16 weeks of leave um, for a family event. Um, and it's not specific to uh, child care or, or having a child. It can be applied to anything. And for, for me and from where I sit, it's a policy that is so progressive because it's generational neutral and it's specific. It, it's not specific to a particular area or, or just, you know, um, a 
particular type of caregiving. And I think it could be really game changing. I think it's um, we're in a, in a time and a place where I think being at a company like Deloitte, it's exciting to not only set policy for ourselves, but help really develop and evolve the conversation that is happening in corporate America around issues like this. Mm-hmm. Deloitte is an outlier still, unfortunately, in this evolution. And like a lot of people look to Deloitte as a leader when it comes to changing the the landscape around workplace balance and flexibility. And like you mentioned, I mean, that's very progressive to offer 16 weeks to take off for any sort of family event, whereas some companies don't even give fathers the ability to leave to take care of their newborn children, um, paid leave, that is. So what is the structure at Deloitte that is perhaps so different or more supportive of this than what other companies don't have that support or they just don't really, they're underestimating their ability to to actually execute something like this? You know, I think what maybe makes us slightly different in this space is that we don't produce, you know, a widget or a product. Our people are uh, where we put all of our energy and effort. And for that reason, making sure that they are able to be their whole selves, making sure that they're able to be their best at home so that they can be their best at work. And then we can serve our clients in our best ways allows us to really focus on what our people need. And I think that it's not different, but I think it places, places a different emphasis maybe and allows us to be an early emerger on some of these issues. What's interesting, too, is that WIN, which is Deloitte's Women's Initiative, where you currently serve as the National Managing Director, that was, I believe, started over two decades ago by a male CEO, which begs the question, how important is it for men to be equally at the table and equally spearheading all of these advancements that we want for women to be able to progress in the workplace and to matriculate higher in the workplace? Yeah, you know, um, it, it is. It's over 25 years old. It was started by our CEO at the time who looked around the table and didn't see as many women sitting at our senior leadership table and wanted to do something different about it. And so it was really created 25 years ago, focused on recruiting, retaining, and advancing women, um, all those three issues. I think if you fast forward 25 years later, uh, we're having an interesting dialogue on where do we want to take it from here? What are our issues now and what do we need to talk about? And some of what we're starting to really see in earnest is that is a lot of the issues that used to affect just our women are now affecting our men as well. Um, you know, their roles at home are changing as a result that has a different focus on their roles in the workplace. Um, and so traditional issues that maybe just really used to be segmented to women or issues that we, we you know, historically we saw women talk about more are really pressing and top of mind to our men as well. So to me, I think it's an evolving gender dialogue on critical issues like caregiving and and some of the topics that we're talking about. And I think in order to make the next level or the next wave of change, you absolutely need to have men be part of that conversation, Uh, not only for them, but also so that they can help progress and help um, pave the way for more women. Right. Really uh, make it inclusive, just like with the family leave uh, policy, where I I know there was you can sense that even people who choose to not have families or that just didn't become part of their reality as they 
progressed in life. They just maybe didn't have kids for whatever reason. There was a little bit of resentment. Like, how come they can get 16 weeks of paid leave and I have to, you know, sit at my desk for, you know, that duration? But you're right. I mean, I think the, the broader we make this more relevant to all people. And, and, and it's not even that we have to do it. It's, it's organically becoming that way. Um, you're just sort of being okay. adaptive to it. I'm curious, Adipa, what personal experiences as a woman in the workforce, both good and challenging, have defined your leadership style? Because you're really rising as this thought leader in this much needed space of dialogue around these very topics. Um, but not everyone has the, either interest or ability or leadership quality to really carry on these conversations and move the needle, which you are. So I'm just curious to know how you came to this point. Yeah, no, I, I would love to share that with you. If I can, let me just um, just add one thing to, to the statement that you started with. When we announced that policy, I just think it's important to note immediately within the middle, the first 24 hours, we got a huge number of emails from from men and women, from um, people who had children, people who were early in their career, people who were just starting out who said, I love the idea that I don't need this right now, but the fact that I could need it later just makes me excited about being here. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is something exciting about the adaptability and the, the forward-looking nature of, of policies like this. And I don't think it's just about uh, making change for people in their current situation. I think it's about making change for people when they need it, um, even if they don't need it right now. And I I just thought that was important to note, because I think that was really not something we were expecting to get those messages from people who were 22, 23, just starting out in their career and saying this was exciting to them. And by the way, they stay Um, on the job longer, right? This is, have you measured how this has uh, contributed to people staying on the work at the job longer and, um, you know, people not quitting because they don't feel supported. Yeah, I mean, I, I think o- over time we'll, we're hoping to pull some of that information. It's not something we have right now because this, this policy is just a few months old. Um, and we really need to see people not only uh, take it and talk about it, because that, that's an important part of making change as well. It's not just having the policy, but getting our you know male senior leaders to take the leave and talk about it will also change, for example, the environment and the context. Um, but yes, we're hoping to have that information. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons we did this. And one of the reasons was to show that this is a place where people should see the destination, where people should come because of what's possible here in the work style and the workplace that we are creating. So I, I think all those issues and those comments are, are relevant. Um, so now back but, to but you. To answer your other question, <laughs> yes, yes, throughout leadership. You know, it, it's something that's just always been near and dear to my heart as a woman of color working in corporate America. And um, when I started early in my career, there weren't as many role models that looked like me um, as I wanted. And so I had to pick and choose and really seek them out where I could. I think it also made me really aware of the fact that um, being a woman of color, um, that I could then have a seat at the table eventually and hope maybe influence change in the ways that I wanted to see it. Um, I keep talking about this this leave policy because it is so game-changing, and I see such ripple effects to what's possible in corporate America as a result of us um, putting out policy like this. And so um, I think it's, it's for me, it, it came just as a personal passion, as something that I have always kind of looked around and, and wanted more role models um, on topics like this. And now to be able to sit in the seat and actually influence those things is really important and exciting to me. You, I understand, are the first woman in your family to uh, get to this level. What kind of 
conversations do you have with your family around your role now, you know, as a leader in this space? What, how have you maybe inspired other family members? I'm just curious to know kind of a little bit about your, your background and, and, and how it's supported you. Yeah, you know, both of my parents had masters in economics, but my mother actually never worked outside of the home until I was um, late in high school. Um, So it wasn't necessarily something that I saw every single day. And even in my extended family, um, I come from a, you know, a traditional Indian background. And so it wasn't, you know, very common. Um, I, I have to be honest, I don't know that my parents or my extended family really totally appreciate or get what I do because it's a little hard to explain, right? I'm on a plane a lot and I, <laughs> you know, work at all kinds of different clients. And so putting words around exactly explaining what I do is hard, um, but they're really supportive. I think that they appreciate that, um, you know, I really wanted to not only um, do well for myself and, you know, have some financial stability, but I also really wanted to do something that could show what was possible. And I think they appreciate that sense of it. Um, but it was hard in the beginning because even within my family, it wasn't necessarily something that I saw every day. You mentioned financial stability being something that you really consciously sought after. I would like to go down that road in a, in a second. But first, if we could set the stage a little bit to understand more of your mindset around money, what is your financial philosophy, Deepa, when it comes to how you like to approach money in your own, in your personal life? You know, I um, am probably not a great role model on some of that uh, because I really don't place as much emphasis as I probably should on it. I mean, I'm aware of where my money goes and I'm aware of how much I bring in and, um, you know, to track it in that in that sense. But um, I have always because of probably how I grew up and we can talk about that, but really place more emphasis on a sense of security. Um, and some of that comes from education. Some of that comes from other things you can do um, in your life. And I see money money as a means as opposed to really what I'm striving for. And so as a result, I don't place as much emphasis on it as maybe um, people think I do or would expect me to. Um, But some of that comes from the fact that when I was um, in high school, my parents actually went through bankruptcy. They, They did really well, lived the American dream. My dad owned a lot of property. And when the real estate market bottomed out, um, in the early 90s, you know, we went through a really hard time. And I think it, as a result of that experience, my perspective on money um, providing stability is a little bit different than maybe the traditional lens that a lot of people have. Uh, I saw how quickly it could lead you and I saw how quickly or how important other um, things became in our life and that um, having things to fall back on like education or, or having stability in the type of work that you did or the industry you were in were slightly more important. And so I've played more, placed more emphasis on those kinds of things, I think, than um, the dollar emphasis, if that makes sense. Yes, it definitely puts things into perspective. And when the bankruptcy happened, were you younger? Were you older? Were you old enough to understand really the the scope of it? Um, and how was it communicated to the family? Yeah, no, I was uh, old enough. I, I want to say I was probably 16. It was around that time. So, you know, middle of high school. Um, but I was old enough to play a pretty significant role. So at that point, my mother actually didn't work outside of the home. Um, and I stepped into, um, you know, playing a pretty significant role when it all happened. My father got pretty ill really quickly, I think, from the stress of the whole situation. Uh, went into the hospital and I stepped into a pretty significant 
I don't want to call it parental, but a, an adult role really quickly. Um, started, I took on a, a job to, you know, make money on the side, went to school, but also took on a lot of the um, responsibilities at home of figuring out what that meant legally and even interacting with different people as things came up when my dad was in the hospital. So I think, yes, it was, um, I look back on certain things in my life and I wouldn't change them. It taught me who I am and kind of uh, taught me to maybe deal in chaos and uncertainty and to really step up and figure things out when you don't really have the answer. Um, but really early on, I think I realized and, and played some of those more adult roles. And it's, it's absolutely helped me in my career and given me a different perspective on what's important. I would think so. I, I think for me, it would teach me to really try to control what I can control and things like an education and working hard. You can't take that away from people, right? I mean, money, as you said, comes and goes. But if you have the foundation where you know you can be resilient and you can work hard and work your way back to a, a level, I think um, it's very comforting, especially coming from an experience like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it taught me a sense of responsibility. It taught me a sense of um, crisis management, yeah. um, which is a good skill set to have. And it, again, I really that emphasis on, um, you know, sometimes the rug is pulled out from you in ways that you don't expect. And so how are you going to define success and how are you going to create stability for yourself? How are you going to place emphasis on the things that are truly important? And I, I don't know that that came directly at that time because at 16 and 17, you're, you have you know, slightly different views of the world, but I think it's definitely influenced my views over time on where I place my energy and where I place my interest. I'll share one story in particular. I remember um, going to fill out some paperwork and one of the county clerks, you know, mentioned, oh, here's someone with a name I can't even pronounce. And I think in that moment, I had an acute feeling of, um, wow, that's really interesting, right? Going through a really difficult situation like bankruptcy. And here's some additional feelings around the fact that we have a different name or an immigrant name. So I think it's um, it really just pulled on a lot of different threads to start to shape who I was as I grew up into an adult. When your peers are going through, you know, the normal teen stuff, did you talk about this to, with anybody? Did you have anyone to confide in? Yeah, you know, I lived a lot. Uh, it was kind of a dual life in some ways because we had done well enough that I was actually in private school. And, you know, being Indian of Indian descent, um, there is a real emphasis on school. So um, prior to this, my parents, you know, took all the money that they had and put it into our education. So I found myself in a private school with people around us who were very well to do. And so, no, I didn't share the personal story or I didn't at the time feel a lot of people could relate to me, but a particularly interesting incident that I remember vividly because it really shaped who I, who I was at the time was the school wasn't allow, going to allow me to graduate because we hadn't paid for fees. Um, and I remember one of my teachers who I was close to, and I didn't know it at the time I found out after the fact, she actually went to the administrators and said she would not walk in graduation if I was not allowed to walk because I was such a leader in the school and the fact that they might not let me graduate for not having, you know, paid fees while we were working through all that in a, in a payment scheme. Um, when I was such a, a visible person in the school and leadership roles and things was very disconnected for her. And for me, it was such a, uh, looking back, I found out a few months afterwards, it was such an important lesson on people can't help you if they don't know, but also just how people lean in in the most unexpected ways. And um, she organized all the teachers to, to walk out if they didn't fix it for me. And I was allowed to walk in graduation. So at the time, you didn't really understand why? You just heard later that it was because these 
teachers had banded together to support exactly. you. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. And I'm sure. Yeah. I've ha- taught you so much about I me. Mean, you were already a leader. That's why they wanted to support you, but just a new, a new level of leadership, mentorship. Absolutely. And organizing, right? That putting your collective voice together can change the system, right? Because the policy wasn't, it wasn't a bad policy. The policy was all bills need to be closed before someone's able to graduate. It was probably just a rule they've had for years um, and we didn't encounter a situation where, uh, you know, someone fell into a situation that that wasn't going to be possible. And so to um, see that my teachers organized around that really taught me also an important lesson about using your voice and um, how you can help people in need. So that, again, I, I turned that into a policy lesson or an act, you know, um, an organizing lesson at the time. How did the bankruptcy ultimately shape your financial relationship with money as an adult? So my relationship with money, I think, is different than some of my peers because I um, don't see money as stability in the same way. I, it, it's a very confusing thing to explain quickly, but I think it's that I saw there was power and stability in things other than money, that money was fleeting. And so it's translated into a different relationship or perspective on money, that money can come and go. And it's important to have it because it gives you freedom. But um, just going after things for money doesn't necessarily a way to bring stability. Um, it also, for me, translates into um, I am not a big purchaser. Like I, I um don't really always enjoy going out and going on shopping sprees or spending money. I probably have a conservative nature coming from the bankruptcy and that relationship with money. So um, I will share a story. When I first made partner at, at, um, at Deloitte, um, there was some financial freedom that came with that. And I remember um, I went out and bought a used car that, you know, was a nice sports car, but it was used and it kept breaking down. And around the fourth time it broke down, one of my fellow partners said to me, you have enough financial freedom that you should go out and buy a new car. Why are you buying a secondhand car that has all these issues? And it never occurred to me until he said it to me. And then it was like, yes, that that makes a lot of sense. And so I think it's a good example of um, sometimes with money as a result of the bankruptcy, I'd probably need a little more permission or a little bit more encouragement to spend freely. I also understand that when you went to buy your first home, that was interesting, right? Because there also a new lesson learned, not, not in the best way though. Yes. There's, there were probably two lessons I learned when I was buying a new home. Uh, my first home, I should say I bought my first home um, in my late twenties, which was exciting. And I know um, a real gift that not everyone gets to do. Um, and when I went to sign the papers, there was some interesting feelings on, I was buying the home as a single woman on my own. Um, and that was an interesting experience with the banker who said, you know, where's your significant other or your father to, to co-sign for everything. Um, so raises some, you know, interesting red flags around those types of conversations and perceptions we still have around women and money. Um, but I also, um, was seeing someone at the time and he actually managed my money. He was a financial planner. And, um, a week before I went to close on the house and I had, you know, put the deposit aside. Um, he, you know, after much, um, hedging his bets and not wanting to tell me, told me he'd actually uh, taken the deposit for the house and invested it into a stock that hadn't done well. And I lost my deposit, you know, five days before I was closing. Really uh, difficult lesson for the relationship. No, no longer seeing him. Yeah, <laughs> but it was also yes. 
<laughs> really important lesson in who you trust with Check, your money, please. right? Yeah, you with someone I, yeah. yeah, and and even someone I was close to, um, probably I shouldn't have, you know, not kept my eye on my money. And again, um, I don't think it was an egregious or something he did, in a, you know, completely inappropriately, but he should have told me and we should have had a conversation mm-hmm. about it. He felt some more freedom with it than um, he would have with a non-traditional client. Um, and so for me, it really taught me again, a really bad lesson, really scary lesson to be going to close on your first house and you have to scramble and figure out where you're now going to re-get your deposit um, and also who to trust with my money and, and how to, to monitor it. Um, I was, you know, young and naive, I think, even though I'd gone through the bankruptcy and um, it really did teach me a different lesson. And as a result of that, I do keep an eye on my money in a very different way than I did in my 20s. Did you get the house? Were you able to still get the house? I did. I, I got the house. That then at this point, that's uh, four houses ago. Um, so, yes, I have. Uh, I do dabble in real estate still. Yes. And now you're married and you brought up your thoughts around money and women and how does that play into your relationship? Uh, do you guys put all, all your money into one account as many couples do? Do you have separate accounts? How do you manage money in your own relationship? Yeah, because I got married later in life, I think I do have very interesting stories and lessons on being a woman, um, a, a single woman, a single successful woman with money. I mean, people have a lot of opinions they put upon you. Um, so when I got married, it's been an interesting topic. I, I'm, mar- I'm two years married now. Uh, we don't. We have separate accounts. We both finance a lot of the home costs together, um, but we decided to keep separate accounts. And it's an ongoing conversation that is still evolving um, around how do we want to co-manage our money? What does it mean to be in a marriage and share money? Um, what's separate? What's together? Uh, we've had lots of conversations around it and just chosen to keep it separate, but it is an active conversation. And so for me, the big lesson there is I had very different views as a single woman around money, um, starting to change my views as a married woman around money, but it is interesting that depending on where you are in your life, those conversations evolve and change. In terms of the balance in your relationship when it comes to me, there's usually one person that's a little bit more high maintenance when it comes to money. You know, the one that wants to always talk about it, always be looking at it is what is that? How does that break down in your marriage? Yeah, I don't know that one. It's, it's an it's a interesting fact. Um, no, I, it, he's very sensitive to my history. Um, and so he knows about my history. And so he's very sensitive to that. And as a result, I think he goes out of his way to make sure um, that I am comfortable. Sometimes I think goes out of his way in his own um, interpretation of what that is versus asking me, which is fascinating. So he's probably more sensitive, sensitive to it and of it. But as a result of knowing my history and what happened in my previous relationship. That's important. Yeah. So many times we don't know where we're coming from. <laughs> so that leads to judgment and inaccurate assumptions. And so that's important that you guys have laid down the uh, the foundation in that way, giving each other that important financial context. We've gotten a lot of advice that the way to do it is to keep separate accounts and then to have a joint account for all the household expenses. It's probably where we will end up. And it's been interesting to solicit so many opinions um, from different people on how it works and the best ways to do that when you have two careers and you're both very busy uh, and we both travel a lot. So it's sometimes difficult to find time for those conversations. Um, So I think that is where we will head. But I appreciate the fact that I found someone who is sensitive to the history. And like you said, I think just be being willing to discuss and do something that's comfortable for each party and come up with a, a new joint plan is um, been really a great way for us to set the foundation for our marriage. 
we'll go back to money in a second, but um, I wanted to ask you this question because I was doing a little research on you and I read a, actually watched a video of you um, at the Harvard Business Review website where you were recounting an experience early in your career uh, that was very defining for you as far as how you now lead. Do you remember the story about when you were preparing for a meeting and because of your gender, because of your age, you were young at the time, you were immediately kind of just, there was some undermining in the meeting. Um, Basically, the guy told you, the executive told you that, what could you possibly know? Because you were, if you had any children, you would be their age or something along those lines. Like he was just, he really, he set the, set the stage and the tone for the meeting. And this was a big meeting and you were there to present some important information. And that really could have um, broken people at that point. I mean, I don't know what I would have done, but you turned it around pretty quickly which is remarkable because you have to really think fast on your feet. And I think uh, it's a story worth sharing. So I'm, I'm going to stop botching the story. I'll have you tell it because I think it really okay. is. It was memorable. Well, thank you. Yeah. It, the short version of the story is I was a new partner. Um, so didn't have, you know, as much experience in, you know, leading that sort of meeting and was excited and nervous all at the same time and had a meeting with um, a C-level executive and um, was prepping for the meeting. He was a little bit of a difficult personality, but walked into the meeting and he said something along the lines of, if I had a daughter, she would be younger than you. So what could you possibly have to say to me? And that was prior to me even getting to the seat to sit down. Um, And somehow in that moment, I found my voice and kind of took a deep breath and said, well, you know, give me 15 minutes. And if I don't say something useful to you, you know, I'll give you your time back. Um, And we spent a couple of hours together because what I told him were things that other people had shared with me, but were too scared to tell him because of his strong personality and, you know, the things, the comments he made like that. And so uh, what I shared with people is that was really defining for me in the sense that I learned that executives don't always get told what they need to be told. And I I learned for me that what I could really uh, lean on was maybe not my expertise or my experience, my years or chronological, you know, working in the corporate world, but it was really this sense of transparency and honesty and directness that has always been who I am and how I grew up um, and is really inherent to what I care about and who I want to be and use that as a really effective tool in the workplace, especially in working with um, senior men. Um, And it's been something that has been really useful and I continue to work on. And I think it's a balance in how you um, can be direct, right? And and, um, people can take the information in because sometimes being direct is hard for people to hear. Um, And it's been a a process of figuring out what that balance looks like and how I do that in the right way. Be direct, but have people listen to you. And it also sounds like you really have to know who the person on the other side of that conversation is, what their needs are and what they're lacking and what you can basically, what service can you provide? What value can you provide? So much we think about what we want to get out of a deal or a conversation or a meeting. But I think uh, that to me also was an example of how to really um, tap into the other person's needs to kind of get them to lean into you and to respect you. How did it end? Was he apologetic? Was yeah, he-, he ended up being one of yeah he ended up being one of my biggest clients ever, and we developed a really good you know friendship out of that. And so it was a it was for me a couple of other lessons too I can share. One was kind of you know not panicking. 
Um, you can choose to panic and, you know, I could have said, okay, well, I'll leave now. And I didn't, right? I mean, somehow I found the ability to kind of ask for something in that moment. And so I think there's a lesson in taking a deep breath, taking a moment, not panicking that can be really, really important. But I also share with people, I think it was also a lesson in realizing how you come across in the world and, and being aware of that. I think a lot of the time, especially as women, sometimes we don't necessarily take a minute to realize um, that there are perspectives or um, biases that might maybe people apply to us when we walk into a room. And I don't think those have to define us, but it's sometimes helpful to know how you come across. So knowing that as a you know young partner that I came across as a young partner was probably good information to have and really served me well as I continue to work with my clients um, because I needed to really lean on that directness versus kind of leaning on experience as a theme to get people to trust me. And also, what do you, how do you react when people promote, and I say people like career experts and leadership experts often quote from the male playbook, the male corporate playbook? Um, people criticize lean in for that in, in some aspects. How do you reconcile that in the workplace when clearly you're a woman and you're not a man? What's the balance there? Hey, you know, it's funny. I think it's one of those things where earlier in my career that used to bother me, I used to really wear a big tip on my shoulder on why are people seeing me as, you know, younger? Why are people seeing me as, you know, all these, uh, you know, as a woman first, and that's not how I want to be seen. I think over time, I've really learned that that's really more about me and not necessarily, I'm sorry, I should say that's more about them, not about me. Um, and really kind of been able to put a boundary around myself as a result of that. Um, I also, you know, have definitely had discussions with other women. Do you, you know, do I spend Sunday watching football so I can go have a conversation about that and be part of the, you know, the, the water cooler talk. And I've chosen not to, I think there's really, there's a lot of different perspectives on it. And my advice to people is I don't think one is right or wrong. I think you have to find what works for you. For me, those weren't things that interest me. So I didn't really want to play the game or adapt to a male style that wasn't who I was. Um, I found ways to do things in a way that was authentic to me um, that felt good for me and find ways to connect with people. I think a lot of that dialogue is about relating to people, um, you know, and, and, getting people to connect with you so that they open up and that you trust each other and you can work better together. And I think if you emphasize or find other ways to connect with people that are truly authentic to you, it doesn't have to be on a male, female sort of, you know, traditional or stereotypical line. But at the same time, there are gender differences, but do you see a a time and place in the corporate world, just like we're sort of seeing in other realms of life, this sort of uh, gender fluidity that we're just not going to start seeing each other as men, women, and therefore stronger, weaker, different. That would be the you know, be a great I, I ideal think, place to be <laughs> in the corporate space. Yeah, it'd be a great ideal place to be. I think, I guess, I, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's, it's, yes, we have to acknowledge some of that happens, but I also think that there's a real value in playing to your strengths or really, um, figuring out what works for you and really emphasizing that. So I'm not suggesting it doesn't happen. I'm not suggesting, um, you know, that it doesn't exist. I just think that rather than placing energy and trying things that aren't you, I'd rather play to ways that work for me and um, place my energy there. Doesn't work for everybody, but it has worked for me and it's made me happier and a better leader as I do that. All right. Back to money for a second, Deepa. Your number one, your so money moment, a time in life that you felt like you really accomplished financial greatness, uh, thanks to your own hard work and strategy. 
Yeah, you know, I think making partner for me when when um, you work at a company like Deloitte for a long time, and I've been here now for 16 years, making partner was a really um, important milestone. It was important, you know, because we have a process you go through to make partner and you have a lot of presentations and all of that. But it also kind of changes from being an employee to being an owner of the firm. I think that was huge for me. And it was this shift of, um, you know, I really have a lot more control in my destiny. I, you know, I'm going to be paid differently because I'm no longer an employee and um, my my yearly, you know, take home is based on units and how well the company does as well. Really kind of changed my perspective on how I see money and how I see, you know, uh, how I budget for things and how I look at things. And it was a huge milestone, I think. And so um, I would probably raise that one as, as one that was important career wise, but also really changed um you know, my income from, from a monthly or biweekly sort of process to a much longer term view on things. And so when your income has progressed and grown throughout your career, what's like one of the first things you do when that happens? I mean, we all go through that, you know, where we switch jobs or we get promoted and we make more and there's a lot of excitement around that. I've talked, I've thought in my head about how many shoes that will equal or, you know, how many, this is when I was younger and I wasn't really, I didn't have my head on straight, but you know, you start to think about the material things and the experiences. Indulge us. What are some of the things that you have uh, treated yourself to as you've Es- escalated in your career? Yeah, you know, I have to say, I think probably because of the bankruptcy, the material things don't um, excite me as much. Um, I would say that, you know, I, my, I recently got married. I got married two years ago, so I got married a little bit later in life, which is a whole different, you know, perspective on money and combined income and all those things. But I, we like to joke that my, one of my largest purchases or our largest purchase was we saw our house and we bought our house less because we love the house, but we, uh, it had a dog run and we have dogs and, um, it's probably the most expensive dog house you could, you know, dog house you could buy. So I think my lesson on money or my, um, how I spend my money is more on other people and, and things I care about rather than on myself, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, for sure. All right. Let's talk about habits quickly. Is there, is there a habit that you have, Deepa, a financial habit that has helped you to, you know, stay on track with your money and yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give you two answers. And again, they may be a little bit different than some of the other folks you talked to. But um, when I first made partner it was an interesting conversation because I mentioned like you get paid differently. I don't get a, you know, biweekly salary because we're partners, right? It's a different process by which you get paid. Um, and so it was interesting to talk to some of my more senior partners and get some advice on how they invest their money and what they do. So I have a financial advisor. Um, we meet once a quarter and, you know, talk about risk tolerance and those kinds of things. And, and he's very helpful in um, helping me in things that I just don't enjoy. I don't, I don't enjoy the money management as much. So that's one thing. So get advice, get ex- experts, um, you know, seek out people if you need help. That That's kind of my big lesson learned from this whole process. It's not something I enjoy doing. So I definitely seek out the help. Um, that's, that's one big lesson I would say in that. The other is um, early on, you know, one of the reasons people maybe pick different careers is because of the financial freedom that it brings. And I remember having that conversation with, you know, a peer early on is one of the reasons that I wanted a career in corporate America because there might come, you know, it might bring some financial stability or freedom. And it's interesting because that has not necessarily been something that was important to me. And um, I really think that for me, one of the conversations that is evolving amongst the people that I work with, and especially I think it may even be generational, is this idea of how much 
um, how much would you trade money for freedom, right? Or time? And what does that balance look like? And so I spent a lot of energy and discussion having um, that sort of topic of conversation with people and trading off, you know, financial freedom for more time and the ability to do things, the things that I enjoy. I think that's a really evolving and interesting dialogue. Yes. And it's something that's very important to us here on the show and something that I spent a lot of time strategizing, you know, using your money wisely, investing your money um, in ways that you may not see a return right away, but certainly it adds to your your happiness, your productivity, your time, your self-development. For me, that's why I think this topic can be so exciting because money is not just dollars and cents and it's not just this transactional thing, but it can really, when, when seated, I think can, can just become this, uh, this great gift that keeps on giving. So Deepa, I know you have to run because you have <laughs> a lot of more important things to do and we want to have you continue doing them. So we just want to thank you for your time and we'll be watching you. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing for women and men and so needed, especially in this new generation, this new era, this new year. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much to Deepa Parshathaman for joining us. If you'd like to follow Deepa, she is on Twitter at Deepa, P-U-R-U. And if you missed anything from this episode, don't worry. You can go to somoneypodcast.com and download the transcript, the audio, and so much more. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope your day is so money. Money.